Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. Um, I have uh, CDO. That's actually OCD, but in alphabetical order, just like it should be. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from someone who might know a thing or two about OCD. Yes. Movie star, artist, writer, ellipsis, James Franco. He's collaborated on a new art exhibit in Los Angeles, and we'll be speaking with him later. Also coming up, musician Todd Snyder on meeting a NASCAR hero. We're taught a lesson about Noel Coward. We've got a new track from the band Twin Shadows, and travel writer extraordinaire Paul Theroux is here with etiquette tips. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Egypt's first free and fair presidential election. Philip Phillips won American Idol. Thousands of investors accuse Facebook of withholding key information about the inflated value of the company. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Amber Bravo. She is a senior editor at The Fader. It's a music magazine. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the new trend to be in the Guinness Book of World Records if you are an established musician. Oh, I see. So most hotel rooms trashed, most yeah. uh, most JB drunk. Yeah, or the most shows played in a single day, which is what Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips is attempting to do. Really? To beat Jay-Z's seven shows in one day, which he clocked in 2006. So there are probably no encores, I'm guessing. In this. <laughs> I'm guessing not. <laughs> what defines the beginning and end of a concert? What if they just played one concert, 15 concerts long, and people just sort of filed in and out? Yeah, like the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because Jack White was actually recently taken out of the Guinness Book. He was in there in 2009 for playing the shortest concert ever with the White Stripes. <laughs> but the Guinness Book got this influx of bands saying, no, we've played the shortest concert. And they were like, well, it's becoming this total nightmare trying to discern what is a short concert, what is a concert. So I guess it's actually put into question the whole genre of short. What was his short concert? What did he what did they um, do? They played like one note. <laughs> and he recently has tried to do concerts with the most metaphors in a single concert. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah so. I, I think this obsession with world records is because the record sales are down. Yeah, <laughs> right. desperate for something. But I want to keep exploring the idea of, of what is a long or a short concert. Could, say, Guns N' Roses showing up for a concert but not playing it be the shortest concert, or would it be the longest because they kept the audience waiting for five hours? <laughs> yeah. Very good. Whoa, it, it's Rico. True. I think you just got into the Guinness Book for the most <laughs> metaphysical host question in public radio. Well, I beat Jack White to it. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Amber Bravo, thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our intoxicating history lesson with booze. First, the history. This week back in 1873, two inventors got a patent for what may be the best-known item of clothing ever. No, it wasn't the meat dress. Adrian Hill, filling in for Michelle Philippi, tells the story of denim jeans. The most all-American of fashion statements was born in Europe, specifically in Italy and France about 500 years ago. Back then, Italian workers from Genoa used a cotton blend fabric for their clothes. It became known around the continent as jean, 
because it was from Genoa. Meanwhile, the French village of Nîmes was making their own fabric, like jean, but tougher. The townsfolk named it after themselves, Twill from Nîmes, a.k.a. Serge de Nîmes, later known as denim. By the 19th century, versions of both fabrics were made in America, but used in totally different kinds of work clothes. Jean, in outfits for office workers, tougher denim for manual laborers. But it took a Nevada tailor named Jacob Davis to make denim the fabric choice for everyone. Jacob specialized in denim work pants, which always seemed to rip at the seam. So he used metal rivets to reinforce them, an idea he patented with financial help from a retail entrepreneur, Levi Strauss. Soon, Levi's denim waist overalls were the most popular work pants in the West. Of course, they became popular everywhere for work and play. Movies helped. Fans wanted to dress like their denim-wearing cowboy heroes. Meanwhile, jean, that other work fabric, faded in popularity. But the word didn't. People just called their waist overalls jeans. In 1960, Levi's gave in and started using the term, too. And that's how an American invention made with French fabric got an Italian name. So that was the kind of complicated history. Now for a drink to serve with it, I am on the line with Johnny Raglan. He is saloon keeper at the Comstock Saloon in the city of San Francisco, where Levi Strauss Company is still headquartered. And Johnny, what drink did that history inspire you to make? Well, Rico, I was thinking, you know, maybe I could make the drink blue for blue jeans, (laughs) but I'm not the kind of guy who would grab the bottle of blue carousel. No, Um, most self-respecting cocktailians would not. Yeah. That's my understanding. uh, I like color and all, but so I I just settled on a drink that I felt was uh, the ingredients would have been available in San Francisco during that time. Okay. So this is a quintessentially San Francisco cocktail. What is it? Well, I'm calling it the Arcuate. The Arcuate. Yeah. A-R-C-U-A-T-E, so it's named after the uh, stitch on the back pocket of Levi's jeans, their trademark. That's called the Arcuate? Yeah, the not-so-golden arches, right. you know. But uh, <laughs> so the, the cocktail is a, is a whiskey cocktail. I figure, you know, working man drinks whiskey, American whiskey. That's um, true. I can attest to that. So I, I chose rye whiskey. I would say Old Overholt would be your best bet because it's commonly available, and it's uh, great rye whiskey. Okay, is that it? That's the whole cocktail? That's it, man. Put it in a glass, call it a day. No, no, no. We're going to add a little bit of Jamaican rum. High alcohol Jamaican rum was a pretty common ingredient. Okay. And then we're adding uh, pineapple gum syrup, and that was probably one of the most common sweeteners in the 19th century. That, that's blowing my mind. That seems so much fancier than I would attribute <laughs> to well, San yeah, Francisco and, and, the gold rush days. Really, if you look at some of the old cocktail books, you're going to find some pretty exotic things in there making its way into port cities. So you got the pineapple gum to balance out that sweetness. We're just going to add a little bit of lemon juice, a couple dashes of Angostura bitters, serve it up, serve it on the rocks, however your working man likes it. And it sounds strong enough that if you spilled it on your jeans, it would wear a hole in it, which somehow seems appropriate as well. Absolutely. And and you have too many of them, and then it's just, it's cutoff time, right? So, Brendan, tropical rum, mm-hmm. pineapple syrup. Yeah. That's just a totally different picture of turn-of-the-century bars than I thought I had, you know? Yeah, I'm, like, picturing tough sailors, you know, drinking from coconuts with paper umbrellas <laughs> sticking out. It's not as gritty as I imagined. No. Uh, all right, people, our website is stocked with recipes for cocktails of all kinds. 
head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click cocktails. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is Joseph Maddalena. He's one of the world's top auctioneers of historical documents and movie memorabilia. The second season of his show, Hollywood Treasure, launched this week on the Sci-Fi Network. He's here with a list that collects his favorite career moments. Hey, I'm Joe Maddalena. I own a company called Profiles in History. We are an auction house specializing in Hollywood props and costumes. And I also sell original historical documents signed by Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. And here are the three most memorable moments in my career. Number one would be um, about 10 years ago, I got a phone call uh, from a man who claimed to be the creator of Star Trek. My secretary said at the time, this guy's pretty adamant. And I'm like, Gene Roddenberry's dead. He created Star Trek. So I, I, unless this guy's calling from the grave, I, I really don't know who this guy is. So this guy was pretty persistent. Took his phone call and his name was Herb Solo. Well, Herb was right. He was a half, half right. Herb Solo was the executive in charge of productions for Desilu Studios, which produced Star Trek. Herb introduced me to a guy named Matt Jeffries. Matt Jeffries did all of the sets for Star Trek, the original series. I went out to Matt's house and he kept everything. He had all his original drawings, models, weapons, I mean phasers, communicators, just the mother load. It was, it was unbelievable. So this is in the year 2000 and it was the first time in my career that I had an auction that grossed a million dollars. It was staggering what the item sold for. Once the auction was over, Matt turned to me and said, uh, I don't want the money. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean you don't want the money? Well, Matt was dying of cancer, and uh, we were able to build the Matt and Diane Jeffries Cancer Ward at the Motion Picture Retirement Home. He donated all the proceeds, so it's probably number one on my list. Well, I'm going to stick with Star Trek because the second story is almost as good as the first story. So number two on my list is Star Trek Part Two. Get a phone call from uh, George Takai, and uh, he said, I met this woman on a cruise, and um, she says she has Captain Kirk's chair from the Enterprise. And I'm like, it's impossible. It doesn't exist. So I called up uh, this woman. In 1969, Star Trek ended, and they called the UCLA Film School and said, hey, do you want all of these sets? So these guys filled up these trucks and drove them to UCLA. And the film department took one look and said, this is junk, we don't want it. The majority of it ended up in the trash, but this one guy decided, you know what? I'm not moving this captain's chair again. He took it home and he used it in his bar for the next 40 years. It was his captain's chair and he'd sit there in Pacoima and overlook the valley and drink his drinks in the captain's chair. <laughs> and when I first walked into that house with George Takai, our jaws dropped. That was probably the most memorable moment of my career. Um, I sold that for a quarter of a million dollars. It'd be worth over a million dollars today. Uh, number three is actually a scandal. Um, there was a guy named Lex Cusack. Um, his father was John F. Kennedy's attorney. Lex Cusack went through his father's papers after his father passed away and forged a series of documents that linked Marilyn Monroe, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. The, these documents 
proved she was having an affair with both the Kennedys, that the Kennedys were paying her to be quiet. This was a big deal. It was all over the news. There was going to be a book written. All of a sudden, people started questioning these documents might not be real. Well, unbeknownst to me, the person who authenticated all of these documents was me. Somebody took my certificate of authenticity and forged my name, and then they put them with all the documents. I had Peter Jennings, one of the most famous broadcasters in television history, show up at my office and confront me and say, you authenticated these. And I'm like, no, I didn't. That's a forgery. It's not my signature. The New York Times, the Washington Post, calling my home at four in the morning. What's going on? Have you been deposed? I mean, it was a big, big deal. And for one time, I was like, I would never want to be famous. (laughs) Now I'm on TV, but that's different. This is fun. Joseph Maddalena, the second season of his TV show, Hollywood Treasure, launched this week on the Sci-Fi Network. And Rico, that last story he told? Amazing. Yeah, someone forged the signature of a guy whose job it is to authenticate signatures. Right, that's like the memorabilia world's version of impersonating a cop. (laughs) It's bold. Yes, and speaking of bold, uh, people, after a quick break, we will be back with travel writer extraordinaire Paul Theroux who dares to criticize public radio royalty. I wouldn't mind saying to Ira, Glass, by the way, you use like a lot. Can't you cure yourself of that? Oh, it's on (laughs) when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with actor and polymath James Franco. Also, folk musician Todd Snyder tells us about his less than pleasant interaction with a NASCAR hero. I don't even repeat in public what he said to my brother on the phone. That's how bad it is. Don't worry, he does provide juicy details. But first, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Paul Theroux. He is considered by many to be the world's preeminent travel writer. He also writes fiction, including the novel The Mosquito Coast. He has a new novel out called The Lower River, about a 62-year-old American man whose marriage has fallen apart, whose business is dying, so he decides to withdraw a bunch of money and return to the African country of Malawi, where he had been a schoolteacher long ago. And the novel just gets darker and more complex from there, Paul. Yeah. Mainly it's a story about captivity. And I have had this experience of being captive in a place. It happened in the 60s in, in Zambia. I went home with some people, and they said, oh, let's go home and have a drink in a village. Next morning, I said, uh, okay, time for me to go. And they said, no, 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 well, let's go get another drink. And you're paying, by the way. Oh, and man. I did that. And then on the third day, I said, I really have to go now. And they said, no, 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 you're not leaving. You're staying here. My heart <laughs> sang into my boots. But that was a very formative experience. You can't leave. I want to go home. Please <laughs> yeah. let me go. Especially for a traveler. That's yeah, right. for a traveler, it's a nightmare because you, you think you travel because you, you, you're liberated and you want to get away. And uh, it's why I left home. I felt you know, I'm captive in my home and this big, noisy family. I want to leave. I left. Well, clearly our listeners share your urge to escape. They've sent in a, a bunch of travel questions. Are you ready to get to these? Sure, I could, I, I'm happy to answer. All right. So this is a question from Adam in Portland, and I believe he's talking about airplanes. He's asking, who's the worst? People who can't lift their bags that they insisted carrying on the plane? People who line up way before their number is called. By which I think he means the uh, the boarding group number, like when they're when you're boarding the plane. Or people who use overhead space in the front of the plane on their way back. Um, this is uh, what I call the tallest dwarf competition. <laughs> uh, all these people are, are, are horrible. It's all horrible. What's there to say about, I mean, everything about an airport is horrible. Yeah. So I would say 
to uh, the gentleman who sent the question. Adam. All bad, nothing to choose. It's <laughs> Hobson's choice. Now, you've been you're traveling for forever, though. Have you? People say that it's getting worse and worse. Is it really getting worse and worse? Yes, it's, it's, it's immeasurably worse. There was a time when, I mean, I suppose in the 60s and maybe into the 70s, an airline ticket could be used on any airplane. So you went into the airport, no check. You went to the desk and they say, oh, uh, you're a little late for the plane, but go down. You know, you're at Delta. Try American. And then you use the same ticket, and then you would just go and take the next plane. Yes, there was a time when it was better. All right. So, Adam in Portland, the advice is weep for the past. Here's our second question. (laughs) Uh, This is from Tammy in Minneapolis. Tammy writes, I ticked off a shop owner outside Florence who couldn't understand I needed stamps. Exasperated, he just said, just speak English. I was so proud of myself for trying, and he crushed my little tourist heart. Is it okay to try to speak the local language when you're still not very good at it? Uh, To Tammy, I say, per favore, io voglio francobollio. Yes. Please, I'd like some stamps. (laughs) Now, she might have been trying to say that. In general, people are kind of flattered and pleased when you try to speak the local language. In Florence, the shop owner is exasperated because his English is better than her Italian, and he's in a hurry. And one of the features of uh, the tourist economy is exasperation. (laughs) But I would say, yeah, try to speak the local language. Take a risk. All right. Even in Paris? (laughs) Well, certain places. Maybe not in France, but all other countries. All other countries. A little asterisk to that. All right, here's a question that comes from Morgan in Los Angeles, California. Is there a destination that you feel people deliberately underplay so as to avoid its being, quote, ruined by mass tourism? And, and I think, Paul, the etiquette question here is, what is the best way to handle a special place? You know, do you yeah. tell people about it at risk of ruining it, or do you keep it to yourself? A magazine asked me to choose my favorite beach. I'm in Hawaii, as you know, at this moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they said, What's your, tell us your favorite beach. I thought about this for about a second or two, and I said, I will tell you my third favorite beach. (laughs) Because my favorite beach is a small beach. And your magazine reaches, I don't know, a million people or even if it meets 100,000 people, I'll find them on the beach. So, yeah, I've underplayed that, particularly, you know, near, near home. But I've extolled, I mean, for example, the Philippines is a very underrated destination. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think they could probably use publicity. The beaches are wonderful in the Philippines. The people are friendly. The food's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not even that far away. So I'd say, yeah, there's a lot of places that I I boost because they seem to need it. But Paul, when you're traveling, I've found this when I've tried to write some travel stuff. Usually the best part of your visit is when someone turns to you and says, if you tell anyone about this, I'm going to kill you. Like they get upset. You know, They're like, please don't ruin this. And then they take you to a beautiful cove or a really special place. Yeah. How do you handle that? You know, there's, there's etiquette and then there's the reality of things. But you know, one of the features of paradises, and Hawaii is one of them, is that as soon as it gets a reputation for being a paradise, it turns into purgatory and then very quickly goes to hell. So uh, you've got to be careful what you say. All right. All right. Here's, here's another question. This is from Maggie in Virginia. This is more of a, a writing question for you as a writer. I've been dating this guy for several months, she writes, and things are going really well. There's just this one thing. He constantly overuses certain words. For example, this is how he might tell me about his commute. Quote, Literally, I got out of work at literally like 7 o'clock, and it took me literally like two hours to get home. (laughs) Is there a way to break the habit without hurting his feelings? I love this question because it brings up— Do you literally love it? (laughs) I love it. It gives me flashbacks to— 
people on NPR. I mean, there's Terry Gross on Fresh Air. <laughs> We've oh, heard of no. him. Uh, who often has a question like, what, what, like, what, what, like, what were you thinking of, like, when, when you were like, and well, then there's Ira Glass, who says, what were you doing, like, and, and it's a story above, like, the like-like syndrome. I have to tell nuts. you, we may not have done this yet, Paul, but we, like, kind of do that like yeah sometimes. we like have done that like occasionally you got, too. but okay but but for some people that's a problem i'll tell you another one okay so so you're off the hook with that like okay <laughs> thank goodness dude well we but, weren't literally on the hook well no of course you so. weren't but it, you know people say uh well what's he like what's this guy really like oh he's a really gorgeous gorgeous guy or what about what, what about him oh he's a mean mean guy what about hitler hitler was an evil <laughs> evil guy that's called epizoixis hmm. or palilogia Really? Yeah, it's a repetition of a, of a word for effect. It drives me crazy. So the, uh, who was the, uh, Maggie, was it? Maggie in Virginia. Her husband or boyfriend is literally driving her nuts. <laughs> Plus is another one. Plus literally. So literally is driving her crazy. What can she do about it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think she's got to point it out to him and say, has it occurred to you that you use literally a lot? I mean, mm. I would... I wouldn't mind saying to Ira or Terry, by the way, you use like a lot. Do you really need to say like? Can't, can't and, you cure yourself of that? But you know what? If Ira or Terry ask about how our interview was with you, Paul, we'll say, well, you know, it was all palologia, palologia. <laughs> <laughs> epizoixis, epizoixis, epizoixis. Like totally. Epizoixis. They're great words, though. Paul Theroux, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave and to speak. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you at the dinner party. Author Paul Theroux, his new novel, The Lower River, came out this month. And you can literally, literally email us your etiquette questions via our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Acclaimed musician Todd Snyder is on tour now to support his latest album, Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables. He's known for his folk rock tunes and for his onstage stories. Today we overhear him telling one. Hey everybody, I'm Todd Snyder, and I've been traveling around this country for more than 15 years. I make up songs and I sing them for anybody that'll listen to them. I'm going to tell you today the story about how I got to meet my uh, brother's hero, race car driver, Bill Elliott. I was playing an outdoor concert in Chattanooga in the town square, singing a folk song. The sound man can talk to the performer through the, those monitors. He says, do you like NASCAR racing? I kind of lean over to the side and nod towards the soundboard that, yeah, I do. And so he says, would, would you like to meet Bill Elliott? And I knew at that moment that was my brother's hero. And I said, sure, I would like to. And I'm not really a NASCAR fan. It doesn't seem that hard to me to drive 200 miles an hour and turn left for six hours. But my brother is into it, you know? And he comes up after the show. There's that room. We have a room almost every night where there's free whiskey and a towel and like celery and ranch dip and stuff where the musicians sit. And so when we're back in the room with just sitting around cooling off after the show and he comes up the stairs with the sound man and before he even says hello to us, he's knee deep in our ranch dip and he's made himself a huge whiskey and he doesn't even really say good show. And I say, you're Bill Elliott, this is cool. And I, you know, I gave him my guitar and I said, I was gonna see if you'd sign it, you know. And he signed his name across the 
whole front of it and kind of ruined it. So I don't even can't even use that. And I, I think, oh man, but you know, I'm being cool because, like I said, it's my brother's hero. Then I get the idea, I'll call my brother. So I call him and we wake him up in the middle of the night and I say, you're never going to believe who I'm here with. And I hand him the phone. And I don't know if you can put foul language, but I don't even repeat in public what he said to my brother on the phone. That's how bad it is. You know, he just said some of the foulest stuff. And it wasn't like he was cussing at him negative. So it, it was almost more like, a you know how Texans, when they like you, they'll hit you, you know, in the shoulder real hard. Like, you're like, what? Or like, you old scum dog, son of a you that kind of thing but it went way off into the it got a little gross you know my brother said oh my god bill elliott i think he, i could tell he was like well wow you sure seem to have gotten bill elliott drunk so we we go over to this bar and uh, we sit in there and uh, the bartender comes over and we're like whatever you want man and uh, bill elliott orders up the most expensive thing they had, almost like a joke, you know, like now, and we're like, what is with this guy? Then we're sitting there chit-chatting, asking about race and stuff, and he says, excuse me, fellas, and he gets up to go to the bathroom, and as he's in the bathroom, the bartender comes over to us with like this worried look on his face. He goes, hey, that guy didn't tell you that he's Bill Elliott, did he? Because he's not Bill Elliott, and he does that all the time. And me and my friend looked at each other and I went, oh man, you know, that's not my brother's hero at all. We've been so nice to him. But I realized in that moment, my brother's hero. Now I have a hero. Lots of people drive fast and take a left. It takes a lot of to steal celery and stuff as if you're somebody else. Singer-songwriter Todd Snyder at least he said he was Todd Snyder. He's on tour in support of his new album, Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. If I had a nickel for every dime you had, I'd have a half of your money. You talk about not have bad. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, a recent article in the L.A. Times talked about the rise of the music sommelier. So you mean DJs? (laughs) I mean professionals who specialize in making playlists for restaurants. So you mean music? Not quite. What do you mean, Brendan? (laughs) I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. So basically, restaurants are starting to select the music they play more carefully. Okay. And some are enlisting little boutique companies, like one called Prescriptive Music, to do it for them. So, Hmm. for example, Prescriptive Music saw a 40% increase in their business last year. Okay, but music sommelier? (laughs) Really? Exactly. This is the term. So when I spoke to Prescriptive's founder, Alan Clevins, the first thing I asked him was, Come on, really? It's not a real term. It's a term (laughs) that uh, we here made up because I'm a a wine fanatic. Ah. Um, We had a meeting and we sat down and we really talked about wine and how um, complex different wines are and how you start off with a certain wine, a certain bubbly, and then you go to a lighter wine. And as the meal progresses, you obviously get to a heavier wine and then a sweet wine at the end. So it was a great analogy of how some of our chefs really think about music. Well, you're mentioning all these different flavors of wine, but I'm wondering if there isn't just kind of a default 
song or genre of music that always works, that kind of goes with everything? Um, you know, that's a great question, and the answer is not easy. Are there safe roads and are there not-so-safe roads? Basically, when we talk to our clients, such as the Cheesecake Factory, we're not going to really push the envelope with David Overton, the CEO. We, <laughs> we went from classical piano all day long to, you know, two years of trying to work with him directly, and then finally, I have a very nice relationship with him. And we sit down and he listens to every track we want to add. He says, yes, no, yes, no. And then we add it. What are you giving Cheesecake Factory? So I guess their playlists and how many songs are on them. And um, With Cheesecake Factory, we are giving them a uh, system that we're able to completely custom program. Some days, some weeks, it's 300 to 400 songs a day per time period. And I say that because in the morning... We play something different than in the afternoon. During happy hour, we play something different. And at mm. late night, we play something different. Can you give me like a breakfast song, like a morning time song that would be a good accompaniment to fried eggs and bacon? So so we, well, fried eggs and bacon, you're not going to find certainly at Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> or maybe on their skinny menu. It's, it's been a However, while since I've been. <laughs> However, um, a Four Seasons you know, Hotel breakfast, a Nora Jones song. Uh, okay. A Michael Bublé song, uh, something that's a contemporary jazz vocal. You know, you mm. want you don't want to interfere with breakfast. People are drinking coffee, they're relaxing, they just woke up. However, at night we will play Bon Jovi, we will play Aerosmith, <laughs> we will play Van Halen, and and they will love it because yeah. those people have already had their day. And we want to with Cheesecake Factory, especially, we want recognizable songs to make those guests feel at home. If there is some sort of dead space between two people talking, they play that music loud enough so that they can understand the music. They're like, winging a prayer, baby. This takes me back. You got it. <laughs> between bites of cheesecake. You know, so it sounds like cheesecake wants recognizable songs, but certainly some restaurants want something more obscure. I'm thinking like maybe you're kind of independent clients. Absolutely. There is a, um, I'll give you an example, Pinkberry. Pinkberry yogurt wants the Kings of Leon before they, are, they were Kings of Leon. They want the up mm. and coming. And we're finding a trend more and more of these restaurants who want to get that type of eclectic, you know, singer, songwriter, indie rock into their playlists. Because let's be honest, if you're going to play a top 40 playlist, Half of them are inappropriate to play in a restaurant anyway because of all the connotations and sex, et cetera, and everybody else can play it. I mean, how many times can yeah. you go hear fireworks, you know? <laughs> you know, back to the idea of the music, Samier, could you foresee a time where, you know, uh, someone comes up to a table with a group of iPods and lets people just listen to whatever they want? Uh, it's interesting. Um, our system that we use is an on-demand system, which means this. When um, Macy Gray walks into the boulevard at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. we get a call saying, Macy Gray's here, so could you please play Macy Gray songs for the next three hours? <laughs> no every third song. way. And really? we do. So <laughs> when Wolfgang Puck walks in to his restaurants, he loves Pink Floyd. So we have a playlist called Wolf Floyd that we use <laughs> when he walks in and we're told, please put this on now. So that's um, amazing. You know, when Rihanna comes, when some of the stars, they like to hear their own music. And especially nearing the Grammys, you know, wherever they were staying, we were playing 
music Whoa. from the Grammys. But what a distorted sense of reality. So Wolfgang, it's like the refrigerator light. Wolfgang Puck must think Pink Floyd's playing all the time at his restaurant. He does, and he loves it. <laughs> and he loves it. But but then secretly they're like, he's gone. Can you please put back on? You know, um, whatever. I will. I will tell you without mentioning a property. There is a property uh, in Santa Barbara that um, the owners do not like vocals. No matter what, they never want to hear vocals. Gotcha. So we have it scheduled. We know exactly what time they come down for breakfast. They will sit there, listen to non-vocals, and by the time they're up, the place is rocking again. So what do you listen to when you're having dinner at home? Like, are you just tired of music at the end of the day? You know, um, I am. I'm always tired. As a matter of fact, sometimes in my car, I just listen to talk radio, and I don't listen to music at all. Lucky us. Um, I'm a huge Barry White fan, so, <laughs> so sometimes I just listen to Barry White and just let it go. Him and that Luther, sounds- I could I could hear listen to all the time. It doesn't sound like dinner time music to me. It sounds more like after dinner music, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Rico, I think that's just amazing, the fact yeah. that they can change the music depending on who walks into the room. But it's true, but you know, it's not that different than what we do when Marketplace host Kai Rizdal comes around. Excuse me? Nothing. Nothing. As you were, gentlemen. Okay, folks, coming up, we learn about Noel Coward and actor and Renaissance man James Franco admits that the one thing he can't do is go to bed. It feels really sad to me to go to a dark bedroom. It's like surrendering to the night. That and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that helps you win your dinner parties. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear a new track from electro pop band Twin Shadow. And in a few minutes, we'll speak with actor, writer, and insert artistic discipline here, James Franco. But first, it's time for Chattering Class. Yes. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is another guy who wore a lot of hats, the late performer and songwriter Noel Coward. Mm. This summer, he's the subject of an exhibit called Star Quality, The World of Noel Coward at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. And this week, I stopped by the show to speak with curator Brad Rosenstein, I asked him to quickly summarize Coward's career. It's an impossible task because he was 14 different people. He was one of the most extraordinary playwrights of the 20th century. He was one of the great composer, lyricists, songwriters of the 20th century. He was an incredible performer. He was an incredible director and producer. He had talents that far exceeded the theater, everything from very talented amateur painter to spy. He's also known for his personal style. Absolutely, and it's a style that he totally invented. He did not come from the world of silk dressing gowns and you know silver cigarette cases. He was born into what he called genteel poverty in South London, but he created that persona, and that became the Noel Coward persona, and that may be perhaps his greatest invention. So it makes sense, since he was 14 different people, that we would start with the Renaissance Man portion of the exhibit. Yes, I think the Renaissance Man really defines him. The exhibition's broken down into 10 different sections, but I think this is one of the key ones, because it was the combination of talents that made Coward so extraordinary. And what this particular section talks about is his ability to be such a chameleon that he could do a great straight drama like The Vortex, which made his name, which he wrote, which he acted in, and which he directed. But then he could switch gears and put on his songwriter's hat and write some of the great uh, reviews of the time with satirical sketches and love songs. And the Vortex tackled some pretty difficult material at the time. It was drug abuse, right? Very difficult material. This was very hot stuff in 1925. The Vortex is uh, an incredibly experimental play in Coward's work. It starts off in the first act and seems like a bubbling drawing room comedy. And by the last act has become a very trenchant psychological drama. It's about a young man, a very talented 
talented young man who's addicted to drugs and the havoc that that's wreaking, and his mother, who was part of that generation of women in the 1920s who started assuming new sexual roles and dating much younger men. Meanwhile, he was also doing song and dance stuff. Yes, exactly. This was the other side of his life, was he was a very prolific songwriter, probably Britain's greatest songwriter in the 20th century. We're looking here, actually, at the handwritten lyrics for Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Can you give us some background this on this? Probably his most famous uh, comic song. It's this breakneck, incredibly complicated rhyming scream pattern, and it's a hilarious song. <laughs> Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. The toughest Burmese bandit can never understand it. In Rangoon, the heat of noon is just what the natives shun. They put the scotch or eye down and lie down. In a jungle town where the sun beats down to the rage of man and beast, the English garb of the English sub merely gets a bit more creep. What's very special about having these lyrics here is that actually when Noel wrote the song, he was on a long driving trip through Indochina, what's now Vietnam, and didn't have pencil or paper. So he wrote the entire song in his head without writing it down. He finally got the chance to commit pencil to paper, and you'll see there's almost nothing changed or corrected in this, and this is the original draft of the song. This is really clean writing. You see this constantly in Coward's work. We have several, we have the original manuscript of his play designed for living, and from the very first draft, it's like Mozart, almost nothing is changed. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday, 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 out in the midday sun. You know, when I think of Noel Coward, I think of a playwright. I think of his role in Broadway, so perhaps we can go to the Broadway section. Since this is New York, obviously we wanted to focus on Noel's life here, and this city was his second home from the 20s. Um, so we're standing in the Broadway baby section, and what we're looking at is a, a, a triptych of photographs from one of his most famous plays, Designed for Living, which he wrote particularly for Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine and himself to star in. Why I love this play is, uh, is a couple of things. First of all, it's in 1933 writing a comedy about a menage a trois. Again, pretty provocative stuff. And yet it becomes one of the biggest box office hits of the time and everyone accepts it. What the play is about is about the price of success on friendship. And the, this play in particular is kind of the quintessential New York play. It travels from when they're starving artists in Paris to early success in London to final culmination at the ultimate symbol, the penthouse in Manhattan. And that's the final scene of the play, that famous scene of them rolling on the couch laughing. You know, this may seem like an odd question, but you're talking about going from kind of bohemian London to the penthouse. How did his finances work? Was there one particular breakthrough that worked for him? Because he, as you said, he kind of came from humble means. Well, he did, but it started, the real breakthrough started with the Vortex uh, because he was getting an income as the director, he was getting royalties as a writer, and he was getting royalties as a star. And then, of course, as a songwriter, um, he was getting all the royalties from songs he wrote. And in that time, it's when radio was expanding, so his work could be heard on radio. It's when the gramophone record as a commercial enterprise was really taking off. The sheet music sales were still enormous. So his income, from these combined sources. By the end of the 1920s, he was the highest paid author in the world. So he was a Renaissance man, a success on Broadway. If there was one other aspect of Noel Coward you'd like to share, what would it be? Well, one of the things that I've been the most impressed by in talking to people who knew him especially and worked with him is his extraordinary capacity for friendship. And this is one of my favorite objects in the show from Vivian Lee's estate, uh, her handwritten letter to him came right at the time of her divorce from Laurence Olivier. And many of their longtime friends were dropping her and taking Larry's side because he was the much more powerful figure in theater at that time. Yeah. Noel didn't. Uh, he stood by her. She was his first house guest right after this happened at his house in Switzerland. And this letter she wrote is just after she's back from this trip. And it's darling this and darling that. And yet the subtext is much deeper and is saying, thank you for standing by me. 
what would Noel Coward have thought about this exhibition? Well, I think I can tell you. Uh, we had Elaine Stritch here, who was one of his closest friends at the opening night. She was very close with Noel. She had became a star in his musical Sail Away. And she had dinner with him very close to the night he died. It was, and they both knew it was going to be the last time. And he was usually very merry and wonderful company. And during dinner, he broke down into tears. And she said, are you afraid to die? And he said, no, I'm afraid of not being remembered. And then she gestured around at the exhibition and she said, Noel would have loved this. When the storm clouds are riding through a winter sky, sail away, sail away. Star Quality, the world of Noel Coward, is on display at the New York Public Library through August. Enrico, I have to admit, before I saw this exhibit, I used to always mix up Noel Coward and Cole Porter in my head. That's not surprising. They were peers, right? And they yeah. both wrote kind of quick, witty, popular songs. It was... And their names both have three syllables. That's probably the main reason. Yeah. But check it out. Brad told me that Coward and Porter actually were good friends. Really? And in fact, there was a character based on Coward in the play The Man Who Came to Dinner. Ah. And Cole Porter wrote a song for that character to perform. It was called What Am I to Do? And it was credited to Noel Porter. Interesting. Yeah. That's actually like the song I wrote and credited to Brecco Francis Gallienum. Oh man, I live on the royalties. Our guest of honor this week is James Franco. Thirteen years ago, he was one of the stars of the revered high school TV show Freaks and Geeks. He went on to co-star in the Spider-Man movie franchise. He got an Oscar nomination for a starring role in the film 127 Hours. He's also a writer and a fine artist, and I'm speaking to him in the gallery of his new exhibit. It's called Rebel, and it's a bunch of collaborations with artists like Ed Ruscha themed around the classic James Dean movie Rebel Without a Cause. And James, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. One of your first starring roles was actually portraying James Dean in a TV movie. Why return to him 10 years later? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, the biopic was an attempt to do an earnest portrayal of James Dean's life. This project takes all the myths, all the legends that surround James Dean, but also all the players that were involved in Rebel Without a Cause including Natalie Wood, Salminio, Dennis Hopper, and Nicholas Ray. I would, I would actually argue also that it also goes beyond even the characters in that film to kind of like Hollywood in general. And to me, actually, the, the central piece in this whole exhibit is this thing called Brad Renfro Forever. First of all, for those who don't know, remind them who Brad Renfro is. Right. Well, let me just say that I, I agree with you that it's gone much, you know, far beyond being kind of loyal or staying in the realm of its source material. So one example is, is a piece that you're talking about, this video about Brad Renfro. Brad Renfro was an actor who, who passed away not too long ago. I think it was four years ago. He did a role in a John Grisham adaptation um, Gosh. The Client. The Client, right, with Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones. And was kind of discovered that way at a very, very young age and came to Hollywood and got involved in drugs in a bad way and had a kind of slow decline. In the video, you get Brad Renfro's name tattooed on your arm with a stiletto knife. He and James Dean are Hollywood stars who died young. But you don't have James Dean's name tattooed on your arm in a stiletto knife. Why Brad? Right. For me, when I had the 
tattoo artist Mark Mahoney, not tattoo me, but actually carve Brad's name into my arm. I just felt like it was a gesture for Brad, but a gesture for almost all actors. I guess because Brad had had a steady decline and was not really known as, as well as he, at, when he died, as well as he was when earlier in his career, he wasn't even mentioned at the Oscars in, during the In Memoriam section. And meanwhile, Heath Ledger, another young actor who died that same year at the top of his game, was remembered, right? Right. So I just kind of felt like that he was sort of plucked out of Tennessee and brought to Hollywood. His life, in a way, was lived in front of the camera and in this public way. So I just wanted to do one more kind of gesture to kind of send him off and in a way say that I hadn't forgotten him, even if he hadn't been mentioned at the Oscars. Can I do a little bit of dime store psychology on you? Yeah. <laughs> You must admit it kind of, this kind of begs it. You become known for the last couple of years for doing like a superhuman amount of art in every medium. You've, you've written, you've directed dance theater pieces, you've done you've multimedia installations like this. You've acquired university degrees from everywhere. I have this theory that, you know, one of the reasons for that would be to have as many escape routes as possible out of Hollywood which is known for discarding its stars, you know? Yes, so your dime store psychology, I think, is, is accurate in, in one level. Yes, on one level, there was a point in my career where, although I was, you know, writing on my own and still doing little art projects on my own, it was, I kept it all to myself. So really, the only work I was putting out there was my acting. And I got to a point where I did feel limited. And... I think a lot of actors come up against this. You know, Joaquin Phoenix made that documentary or faux documentary. Whether it's genuine or not, I think it's at least part genuine. He has a you know monologue at the beginning where he says, as an actor, you get dressed and they you know write your lines for you and tell you where to stand and edit your material together. And I'm, I might be adding some of it too, but I you know I, I in a way I felt the same thing, and I've heard on the Oscar campaign press trail, Colin Firth say similar things like you're infantilized as an actor. And I have a ton of respect for actors and acting. It was just that when I'm hired to act in a film, I'm serving a director's vision. More of a tool in a way. You're not, you're a tool, you're, but you're a thinking tool. You're a feeling tool. You're a collaborative tool. But the final say is the director's. And so, yeah, so I went and directed my own projects. I wrote my own things. And that took the pressure off needing to have control as an actor. But now the criticism then comes, can anybody who's doing this much stuff in this short a period of time really be serious about it? Like, are you just having fun with your celebrity and seeing how much we'll tolerate? Or are you, are you serious about all of this stuff? No, I'm very serious about it. I mean, if I was just using my celebrity, I wouldn't, you know take the time or turn down films to go to school. I'm sure I could have had books published without going to school for four or five years. And, it's, you know, and, you know, and then, yeah, okay, other criticism is, all right, he's just racking up degrees and it doesn't mean anything to him, but that's, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The cliche is that actors are uneducated or whatever, and then if you go and get an education, like, okay, get an education, but not don't educate yourself too much or something, or, like, you're a phony if you do. or so, It's like, you'll never win, um, which is fine. I mean, I, the school part of it, 
is not a performance. People have written about it, everyone from New York Times to Gawkers, and I'm not doing it for them. I, I really was there for me. We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show, and I now think I know your answer to the first one, <laughs> which is, what question shouldn't we ask you? And it sounds like one of them would be like, why are you getting so many degrees at once? <laughs> I don't know. I guess you can ask me most things. I mean, my, I, I, here's what I don't like. When these outlets try to criticize me, but really they're also capitalizing on the fact that a story about me will get eyes on their page or readers. They're using me and, and using exactly what they're trying to criticize to get publicity for themselves. And those are, to me, are the biggest phonies. And um, I wish they would just stay away from me. <laughs> well, here's how we get publicity for ourselves, which, which is the second question. Tell us something that we don't know. It could be about yourself or it could be about the world at large, just something that'll kind of blow people's minds at a dinner party. Gosh, I mean... Uh... I do reveal a lot. Uh, I generally, when I travel, I sleep on the couch. I don't like sleeping in the bed. Why, do, why don't you like sleeping in a bed? It feels like um, really sad for, to me to go to a dark bedroom. It's like surrendering to the night or something. Like I like to fall asleep either reading or watching a film or something. You've milked the most out of the day or something? Yeah. That's surprising from the guy getting multiple degrees. Yeah. yeah, and part of that comes from way back, I guess when I was 18 or 19, when I left school, and I had this feeling like I needed to prove that it was okay that I had left by working harder than I had when I was in school. And now that I've gone back to school, I feel satisfied with some of the work I've done. Uh, you'd think that I would be able to relax now, but I think it's just kind of a habit now. I don't... I, I still don't like going to a bed alone. Take a vacation, man. I, yeah, I should. The art exhibit Rebel is open through June 23rd at JF Chen in Los Angeles. And Brendan James was a very sweet guy. He sounded like it. Yeah, but I'm sad to say he did not take a vacation. No? No. Instead, we started talking about radio, and now he's our senior producer. It's weird. <laughs> that is weird, because I just hired him as our sound engineer. Really? All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is the dinner party for this week. Next week, legendary writer and NPR commentator Frank DeFord will be here to discuss the glory of sports. Baseball managers, no matter how old they are, dress like children. One guy who dresses like a grown-up most of the time is Jackson Musker. Yeah. He's the assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks this week to Ravi Carmen, Bill Lance, Jeff Peters, Peter Clowney, and Judy McAlpin. And we leave you, as always, with One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner parties. The band is called Twin Shadow. This is the first single off their forthcoming album, Confess. The song is called Five Seconds. And you're going to hear about 60. Bon appétit. Five seconds to your heart Straight to your heart can get to your heart
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Hey, guys. Hey, Jackson. How'd you like to meet Meryl Streep? What? Yeah. yeah she, Is she here? Wow, that'd be cool. It's amazing. Meryl Streep coming right at you. Hey, is that a piece of celery? She's taller than I thought. Yeah. Ranch dressing. Like that.